the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. If you truly have faith, that faith will evidence itself by works. What kind of works is he talking about? Well, he he goes on to explain. If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. This is Verse by Verse, a daily radio Bible class taught by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. The passage Pastor Steve just quoted is from James chapter 2. Real faith reveals itself in our actions, so that passage fits right in with the subject of our series, How to Recognize the Children of God. And our main text is 1 John chapter 3. One of the ways we can see if someone is truly saved, including ourselves, is by love demonstrated toward other children of God. Here's Pastor Steve now with today's lesson. Towards the close of the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he tells the people of this church to examine themselves to see if they were in the faith. Now that's very interesting. Instead of encouraging these folks to consider that sometime in the past they may have prayed a prayer of salvation or made a decision for Christ, Paul doesn't say anything about that. He says, if you want to know if you're in the faith, don't think back to a past experience, but look at your lives and see if there is the daily reality of Christ in the way that you live. Now, that call to self-examination for the purpose of assurance of salvation is essentially what John's first letter is all about. John offers several tests to us as believers whereby we can objectively look at our lives, examine our lives, and see if there is evidence that we have come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. And as we've stated a number of times, though John says it in a number of different ways. Essentially, there are three tests that John gives us. Three tests. Throughout this letter, he keeps coming back to one of these tests. First of all, there is the test of obedience. Do I desire to obey the Word of God? Is that the passion of my life? Even when I don't obey Scripture, is that what I'm looking out for in my daily existence, that I do want to obey the Word of God? Secondly, there is the test of sound doctrine. Do I believe the truth about Christ in his atoning death? You may not understand all the nuances of salvation and the person and work of Christ, but but the issue is, and the question is, do you believe the truth about who Jesus Christ is, God and man in one person, and the meaning of his death on the cross being in payment for sinners? 
The third test is the test of love. Do I have a love, not just in general, but for the people of God? Do I have a love for God's people, children of God? Now, for the last few weeks, we've been camped on this test of love because John makes a major issue about this. And apparently, the reason that John has made such an issue about love is because like a wise and veteran pastor, the Apostle John knew and understood his sheep. He understood the people that he was writing to, and therefore he was aware that they were struggling over loving other believers as the basis of their assurance. See, John not only tells his readers that they are to love one another, and that their love for the brethren is the test of whether or not they evidence that they are Christians. But John gets very specific as to what type of love he's talking about. What do we mean by biblical love? And so let's look again at 1 John chapter 3. And I want to read to you verses 14 through 18. We know that, he says in verse 14, we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, notice he gets very specific. We know love by this. We understand what love is all about, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We understand the meaning of love, that love is sacrifice, love is giving. Love costs something because we understand Christ's love for us in laying down his life on the cross. And then John says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, he explains, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, what John is talking about here is the kind of love that brings assurance of salvation is a love that takes action. It's a love that does more than than talk more than prayer. It's a love that sacrifices. It's a love that gives. This isn't some vague notion about love, like what I read years ago, what, how Snoopy defined love. He said, I love humanity. It's just people I hate. It's not that. John is talking about love that cares enough for individuals to do tangible acts of sacrifice, a love that really costs us something, like Christ's love, cost him his life. Now, I want to stop here for a few minutes and call your attention back to verse 17. Look at verse 17 again, please. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, notice John defines love here as a compassionate heart for a fellow believer who has a need, a material need. And then we meet that need if we have the means. Now, this is an important truth, and I I don't want to pass over this lightly. It needs to be seriously considered by everyone who claims to be a Christian, because as one examines not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament, but as one examines the Bible, we realize, and especially the New Testament, that the early church was very concerned about giving to Christians who were poor, who were hurting financially, hurting materially. I want to just go through some of the passages in the New Testament 
that speak of the early church's social concern for ministering to their own who were poor. And I think that we as evangelicals have backed away from this because we don't want to get into a social gospel, and rightfully so. The gospel is not a social issue. But once you know Christ, there are social implications, especially in terms of ministering to the poor. Notice how the early church took care of their own. We begin by looking at Acts chapter 2. We're just going to do a a little Bible study going through these verses, but I'd write these down because they're very important to remember. And as I said, it's easy to pass over this. Acts chapter 2, we're speaking of now the early church, the first church, the church at Jerusalem. And we notice in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, it says, and they began, now this is the people of the church, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with all as anyone might have need. This was the first church. It was a church that uh, that many people had been a part of in its early days. They had stayed on in Jerusalem uh, after the day of Pentecost. They had come from all around and some of them gotten saved and this church just grew and grew and grew and they didn't have the resources. So people just, just started giving to them, just started giving. The church met one another's needs. You see this again in Acts chapter 4, same church, verses 34 and 35. For there was not a needy person among them. Now imagine that. There were thousands of people in this church. We know that from the book of Acts. Thousands, and yet there was not one needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This was the Church of Jerusalem's benevolent fund. They brought them to the apostles, and they said, as you see need in the congregation, just take Just take and meet those needs. We also know from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, but it was the daily serving of food to widows. We often pass over that because there was a conflict there between the Greek-speaking Jewish widows and the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows, and they started probably at that point the office of deacon, and so we usually focus on deacons, but we need to remember that what started this all was the church had a burden to daily serve food to widows. But there's more. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, when Paul is explaining about the the new man in Christ, how we are to behave as new creatures in Christ. We put off our old sinful baggage that we brought into the Christian life. We put that behavior off. We put on new Christ-like behavior. Verse 28 says, he who steals must steal no longer. If you were a crook, a thief, before you were a Christian, and stop it now that you are. Stop stealing, he says. That's the old man. But rather, he must labor But notice this, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So that he'll have something to share with one who has need. You don't simply work if you're a Christian in order to meet your own needs. You work so that you can minister to others who have needs. And then I love Galatians chapter 2. In the midst of the Apostle Paul defending justification by faith alone, he says that I went up to Jerusalem, Barnabas and I went there, I told the apostles in Jerusalem of my ministry. Remember, Paul was not one of the 
the original 12 apostles, but he was an apostle on equal standing with them. Only God had called him to a unique ministry, a ministry to the Gentiles, and he went up to Jerusalem to confer with them and let them know about his calling and what God was doing through him and that the gospel was by faith alone through Christ and his finished work on the cross without any mixture of law in it. And notice what we See, in Galatians 2, verse 10, after saying that they gave us, in verse 9, the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, meaning that they said, yes, we understand, we approve your ministry of the Gentiles and we have a ministry of the Jewish people. Then, notice what they said to him. They only asked us to remember the poor. Paul, as you're preaching the gospel, remember to take care of the poor. And notice what Paul said. The very thing I also was eager to do. It wasn't just a sideline with Paul. Paul said, I was eager to do that. I didn't just preach the gospel. I made sure that those who came to faith in Christ were taken care of, the poor. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James is talking about faith. He's talking about works. He's talking about the reality of our, of our faith in Christ He says in chapter 2, verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, he's not saying that works save us, but he says that if you truly have faith, that faith will evidence itself by works. What kind of works is he talking about? Well, he he goes on to explain. If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body, What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. In essence, James is saying you you see a brother or a sister in need, and you, uh, you say, I'll pray for you, and yet you very well have the means to help them, and you don't. James says, I question how you can even be saved. Let's go back to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, there's another indication of Paul's heart and the early church's heart for ministering to the poor. In Acts chapter 11, we read, starting in verse 27, Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. That means the Roman Empire world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And, in the, and notice the church's response. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. They heard that there was going to be a problem with famine. They knew the Jerusalem church was already hurting. They took a collection. They said, Paul, Barnabas, you take it. Give it to the church. Then Romans chapter 15. You really see Paul's heart in all of this, his concern for the poor. Romans chapter 15, verse 26. He says, for Macedonia, he means the churches now, For Macedonia, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. These churches took a collection for the poor in the church at Jerusalem. So the early church certainly had a heart and a burden for the poor. 
Now, where did they get this heart? Where did they get this burden to be so sensitive to the needy amongst them? Folks, it came from Jesus himself. It came from Christ and his compassion for the poor and needy. Christ's heart. Matthew chapter 15. Look at his heart. In Matthew 15, he's ministering to thousands of people. They're ready to leave, but the Lord says no. No, they, they can't go yet. Look at Matthew 15, 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. Now, most of the time we read this story, all we tend to see is how he miraculously fed them. And that's, that really is the major point of the story to see that he can do that However, we don't want to overlook the fact of Christ's heart for the needy. He didn't even want these folks going away from him hungry lest they faint on the way because they didn't have the energy. That's a heart of compassion. So he miraculously fed these folks. Remember what Jesus told the rich young ruler? He told him to sell his possessions and give to the poor. Now, I understand that was a test for this man. I understand it was an evangelistic uh, effort. With this man, it was an outreach to him. Nonetheless, the Lord did tell him, you're wealthy, sell what you have, give it to the poor. And then look at Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 12. And he went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return And that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they don't have the means to repay you. For you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You just see Christ's heart here for those who are the downtrodden and the poor are part of that. And then finally, Acts chapter 20. This just sort of caps it all off. Acts chapter 20 our Lord's heart. This is not recorded in the Gospels. It's one of those unique sayings that is attributed to Jesus, but is not found in in the Gospel narratives. But notice Acts 20, starting in verse 33. Now, Paul is explaining his ministry to the church at Ephesus and how he conducted himself financially And he says in verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You know that these hands ministered to my own needs. Remember, Paul was a tent maker. He took care of himself. These hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Paul not only worked as a tent maker to take care of himself, he also took care of others. He said, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help The weak, meaning you have to help the poor, those who can't work as hard as you can. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said that. That's his heart. So, now as we think about 1 John, we go back to 1 John in light of this. And John was an apostle close to Christ, knew his heart, understood the burden for the poor. 
What John is telling us then here in his letter about love sharing with those who are in need is something that the rest of the New Testament emphasizes. This is not unique to John. And it ought to be a norm for us. It ought to be more than a once a month benevolent fund issue. We ought to always be thinking about ministering to those in our midst who are hurting financially or who have needs Someone, a man by the name of Burdick, who wrote a very fine commentary on 1 John states this, genuine Christian love will make it a point to help those in need. In fact, he writes, as in the early Jerusalem church, there ought to be no needy believer in our local churches today. If at the church of Jerusalem, which consisted of thousands of people, Luke can tell us that there was not one who had a need amongst them, that certainly ought to be true of us here at Lakeside. So folks, all of us have to consider we have a responsibility to love each other by meeting one another's needs. As I said, this is not simply a benevolent fund issue that we collect money once a month when we take the Lord's Supper. It ought to be a daily way of life for us. Now, that is a major biblical command for us, to love each other in that kind of manner. But here's the problem. Here's the problem that all of us have with this command to love. The more we consider these high standards of love, the more we see our own failures, don't we? Because we know that we've not always been loving. We've not always been kind. We've not always been thoughtful and and sensitive to others. There have been times, many times, when we've just been too selfish to give anything to help a brother or sister out. In fact, sometimes we are so self-absorbed so consumed with ourselves, so thoughtless that we don't even take the time to ask a brother or a sister what their situation might be so that we don't even know what their needs are because we haven't taken the time or consideration to even find out. And so when faced with our many failures of love, we may wonder if maybe we're not Christians. Maybe, maybe we really don't know the Lord. How can I be so selfish And say that I know Christ. Because our love at times is so defective and so small. And the result of all of this is that instead of love becoming a test that helps us with assurance of salvation. Just the opposite is true in many of our lives. The more we think about how loveless we are and have been. The more we think that we might not be saved. And John knew that. John knew that this was precisely the dilemma that his original readers we're dealing with. And so, instead of quickly moving on to another subject, John continues to stick with this subject of love being the basis for assurance. And that's what we have been studying the last few weeks because John takes the last section, the last few verses of chapter 3 to reassure us, not just assure us, but reassure us that even though we so often fall short of loving others, we can still have the assurance of our salvation. And the way he does this is just precious. Without excusing our sin of being unloving at times, John calls us, watch this, this is, this is what's liberating. He calls us to focus on the love that we do show, not the love that we don't show. And his point in all of this is to say that even with all of our failures and shortcomings to love, the fact that there have been times when we have shown love for God's people 
tangible love, characterized by action and sacrifice, proves that we really have come to know Christ. Because unbelievers don't do this. They don't do this at all. They're not interested in believers. In fact, let me put it this way. Non-Christians are not even neutral towards Christians. According to what John has written before these verses, non-Christians hate Christians. They're not even neutral. So, if you have shown and you show any love at all towards God's people, it's only because you have been saved. And your love, deficient as it may be, is the proof that you have become a true child of God. We do need to be sensitive to the times we drop the ball and confess when we could have demonstrated love but didn't. But let's also celebrate the times we've allowed God to actively love others through us, thus demonstrating that we are indeed new creatures with hearts in tune with that of our Savior. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Thanks for joining us. We don't have much time left today, but I want to briefly remind you about two websites. One is www.lakesidechapel.com. If you'd like to know more about Lakeside, they have lots of information. The other site is our own, versebyverseradio.org. Our busiest page is the archive page. We have hundreds of previous broadcasts available for free streaming or downloading. This is Jerry Peterson. We probably all need to admit that we've been guilty of copying out when we could be helping other Christians who really need it. But it's those other times when we do show our love for other believers Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.